0: follow the law and this ultimately resulted in his arrest by the jewish authorities culminating with his appeal to caesar in rome we may be able to infer from the text that the christians in rome have experienced some sort of persecution and we know this in, in acts 18 where it refers to the emperor expelling the jews from rome Paul gives multiple admonitions in the preceding text in, in Romans 12 of blessing those who persecute you, not, never avenging yourself. This may be an inference that there was some type of persecution or hardship that the church was experiencing. In all of Romans leading up to this point, Paul has been making his great defense of salvation by grace alone through faith. In 7 and 8, and we'll be coming back to 7 and 8 as well, he he makes the case that the the law is wholly inadequate to save. No one ever gained salvation by following the law. And in Christ, we're released from the captivity and the condemnation of the law because the law cannot save. The law only exposes our sinfulness. Paul talks about where... Where there was no law, there, he didn't know what sin was before the law. But when, where there's law, sin seeking the opportunity roused up our passions against the law. The law ultimately exposes our sinfulness and our need for a savior. And God did what the law weakened by our flesh because Paul calls the law good and holy the passions of our flesh being sinful. Our sin stirring up our passions against the law. The law would never save. But God did what the law could never do. He sent his son. In Romans 12, after Paul's great doxology, there's a decided change in tone of voice that Paul is, Paul is speaking no longer about the great defense of salvation by faith he's talking about primarily how Christians conduct their lives in light of such great grace he opens up with I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice how we conduct ourselves before a holy God The lead-in to Romans 13, he begins, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The command to love leads the list and sets the tone for everything that comes afterward. This being quite consistent with what Christ has said. And John, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By, all, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in Matthew 22 where he's asked what the greatest commandment is. After love the Lord your God, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul reiterates that here. Let love be genuine. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It's easy to bless those who bless you. It's far more exceptional to bless those who wish you ill, and we can only do that through Christ. Likewise, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We're to live peaceably with everybody. We're not to seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. To the contrary, if our enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you heap burning coals on his head. Universally in the Old Testament, burning coals are viewed as a sign of punishment and judgment. And in light of the love that we show as a response the evil will be judged even more so our goal should never be to seek out punishment for the wrongdoer it should be to show the love of god god is the only avenger the fact that god will have, that vengeance is god's should not be our motivation it should be our comfort that in the end we have a god who justifies his children So against that backdrop of love one another, live peaceably, bless those who persecute you, feed your enemy, give your enemy something to drink. Paul has the lead-in to Romans 13. And even after the section, the lead-in, it's back to love again. In 13.8, were commanded oh, no one no o oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves has fulfilled the law for all the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not covet and any other commandment are summed up in this word you shall love your neighbor as yourself love does no wrong to a neighbor therefore love is the fulfilling of the law so against this backdrop Paul seemingly switches gears into Romans 13. Let's read the text for today. Starting in Romans 13. "'Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, "'for there is no authority except from God, "'and those that exist have been instituted by God. "'Therefore, whoever resists the authorities "'resists what God has appointed, "'and those who resist will incur judgment.' for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who's in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is god's servant for your good but if you do no wrong be af- if but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of god an avenger who carries out god's wrath on the wrongdoer Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Against the backdrop of love one another, and love fulfills the law, we seemingly come to a very rapid change in gears. And then almost as quickly as we get there, Paul moves back into love one another. Most translations have this section listed. The, the heading for this particular section of Romans is submission to the authorities, a Christian's duty to the state, the Christian and government Submission to civil government, submission to government authorities, respect for authority. This is one of the harder passages of Paul, both in the text and historically. Historically, Romans 13 has been used by, by many to cow Christians into supporting all manner of abuses. Without too much of a, a run-through history, It was often used in the South before the Civil War to justify slavery and all sorts of abuses. During World War II, governments used this to to cow Christians into submission to the government, and many of them did. It's often been used to dispel any questioning by Christians of those in power. Is this really what Paul is getting at? Blind submission and blind obedience. Such an understanding would certainly be a very rapid and brief change of gears into a passage that's bookended by a call for the Christian to live in love toward all, both to those within the church and, with, and outside of the church. I think this section is probably better understood as unpacking the commands of, of Romans 12.9 that begins, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good unpacking these commands as it relates to how Christians relate to government. This certainly isn't the only section of Scripture that talks about submission to the authorities. In Titus chapter 3, Paul Paul briefly gives the command in 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And it's the only mention in Titus 3 that Paul makes of it before he very quickly moves into admonishing Christians to live peaceably with everybody. In fact, most of Titus chapter 3 is dedicated to that topic. Paul admonishes us there to avoid quarreling and conflict in the passions of the flesh because that's how we behaved before God saved us. We also see the the only other section in the New Testament that spends... Any particular length of time on this is in 1 Peter chapter 2 that begins, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. And Peter gives multiple reasons that government is a punisher of evil, our obedience and our living peaceably silences those who speak against us. He also warns us not to use our freedom that we have in Christ as a cover for all sorts of evil. Just because we have freedom in Christ, this isn't licentiousness to do whatever we want. We do have to live as one under authority. But Peter goes on in in that chapter and makes, makes the argument that sometimes we may suffer unjustly and we may suffer unjustly at the hands of a government. And he calls it a gracious thing in the sight of God that if we suffer unjustly, and we're called to endure that suffering because Christ also endured suffering and did no wrong. So he calls us to follow the example of Christ. We're called, we're called to be submissive to the government because it's from God. Um, all order and structure originates in the very nature and character of who God is. We're told in Scripture that God is a God of order and not disorder. He's a God of peace. Beginning right at the beginning, at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1, where you know, man is commanded, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion. That there's some type of order to be in place. We're not given specifics there of what that is. But there's the statement of have dominion institute some kind of order and again and after the flood in Genesis 9 we're told when God is making his covenant with Noah for your life and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image there's some type of order that's supposed to be in place. Paul calls government and the authorities a servant of God, a terror to bad conduct and not to good. Even in the harshest of regimes, evil is punished. We spent time in Judges looking at what things look like when there is no king. We spent 21 weeks on what happens when there is no king. Evil abounds. The, in fact, the closing, line, the closing verse in Judges, everyone did what was right in his eyes. In those days, there was no king. But because government is instituted by God, government is ultimately accountable to God. Sometimes good leaders are given as a blessing to the people. We see this in David and some of the other kings, although the list of of good kings of Judah are very short. There aren't many of them. And even the good kings have their flaws. David certainly had his flaws, ordering the death of one of his generals to commit adultery with his wife. Even the good kings have done evil things, and sometimes the bad le- sometimes bad leaders are given as a judgment against the people. We see this with Saul when Israel ultimately rejected God as their king and said, no, give us a king like the nations around us. And Samuel's warning from God of what a king will do and how a king will oppress the people. We see with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians where God's judgment on Judah for their apostasy. But what we can take heart in is that even the evil leaders have re- received their judgment from God, for they're ultimately accountable to him for what they do with the authority they're given. Because as it as it's written in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. When, when the King Nebuchadnezzar is given the, the vision of the golden statue and is asking, you know, who can tell me this dream? Who can interpret it? And God tells Daniel what the dream is and the interpretation. Daniel, may, Daniel says, Blessed be the name of, the Lord, of the God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. we're warned that resisting the authorities is resistance to God's appointed order and resistance does incur judgment resistance to godly rulers who are carrying out God's will is ultimately ultimately incurs the judgment of God because we're resisting his appointed order but resistance to evil rulers also incurs judgment because leaders don't take well to being defied we may incur the temporal judgment of a leader for our defiance. And in situations like that, we're told, Jesus tells his disciples and the people in Matthew 10, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell our ultimate allegiance is to God, for God's the institutor of everything. Paul tells us that, that the necessity of government is to expose and suppress evil. Again, I go back to Judges. We just got done spending 21 weeks in Judges, and each chapter seemingly worse than the last when we thought that it, when we thought that the evil, the evil couldn't get any worse, we turned the page and lo and behold, it's worse. Because everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. Anarchy is truly a terrifying prospect Because we're sinful creatures and unfit to rule ourselves. Scripture is replete with how we are unfit to rule ourselves. Because anarchy is the exact opposite of the character of God. In 1 Corinthians 14, we're told, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And that peace comes through order. We're told, in the, we're told throughout Scripture in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But remember the law. Obedience to law can't save. Where there is law, there is sin. Because sin, sin seizes on the opportunity to rouse our passions in defiance of the law. the law triggers our rebellion. If only for the sake of our rebellion against God's instituted order. We're told, do this. And our sinful nature rises up and says, no. Even if we know it's good for us. But because we're told to, Our sinful nature and rebellion says, No, I won't do that. The law exposes the sinful condition of our soul. The law cannot save. Not because the law isn't good. Paul tells us in Romans 7, the law. The law is holy and just and good because it's from God. Our flesh is the weakness of the law because the law stirs our our passions against it. We are sinners by nature whose natural state is rebellion against God. We're told this in Genesis 3, right at the beginning. We're also told in Romans, without the law, there's no knowledge of sin. Therefore, the law can only expose our sinfulness. We're told in Romans 13 that government is God's minister on earth to punish wrongdoing, but simply following the law can't save us. As we're told in Romans 8, that God did what the law law was unable to do. Law serves as a seedbed for sin, since sin arouses our rebellion to the law. Therefore, obeying the governing authorities can't save us. There is no salvation in obedience to the authorities. The presence of government and God's structure only exposes that we live under condemnation because of our sin. And we are in desperate need of a savior. Sometimes, as we're told in Peter, sometimes we'll suffer unjustly and sometimes that suffering will be at the hands of the authorities. And that is a gracious thing because in our in our endurance of the suffering without vengeance we imitate the suffering of Christ who though he knew no sin was condemned on our behalf we're also told that if we want the approval of those in in authority do good do what is good and you will receive his approval for what is good we're told many places throughout scripture what is good and certainly there are many passages that we probably know galatians 5 where we talk about the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindfulness kindness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law we're told later in Romans 13, owe no one anything except to love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. How do we get the approval of the authorities or at least certainly avoid the wrath? We show God's love to one another. We live in the love of Christ. Christ. If I'm showing love to my neighbor, that I'm keeping the law of God. I'm keeping the law of God that government is charged with enforcing. And I have nothing to fear. So what should our response be to this? Well, we're, at the end of our text today, we're, we're told for this reason we also pay taxes to the, for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. That's their job. To keep a, to keep a watchful eye. The, fra- the phrase that's used there is attending to this very thing is, has the connotation of it's the all-consuming job. This is their one and only job. pay to all what is owed and we're we're told taxes, revenue respect and honor we should make sure that we owe nothing to anybody so that nobody has a claim on us except as Paul talks about and goes on in Romans 8 owe no one anything except to love each other we should always have a debt of love because the love of God is endless. We're to show that love. And we will always be in debt. We recognize that we are ones under authority. We we are not our own masters. In fact, Scripture is quite overwhelmingly full of stories and texts that show what happened when we try to be our own masters. It doesn't work out well. But ultimately, we're under God's authority. In Mark chapter 12, verse 17, the religious leaders try to trap Jesus by asking him, should we pay taxes? And Christ's response, after admonishing them for trying to trap him, says, hand me a coin. Whose face is on it? And they say, Caesar's. And, who's, and whose writing is this? Well, it's Caesar's. And Christ gives his response, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And ultimately, everything, the world and everything in it, belongs to God. Caesar's face is on the coin. And he has ever so humbly marked it with his face and his inscription. If he cares so much about it, give it to him. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God. Here is that coin, and it has Caesar's image on it. But every single human being has God's image on him or her. We're told this in Genesis 9. We were created in the image of God. And thus, this makes a categorical distinction between the rule that only God can claim the authority and sovereignty that only he can claim, the rights that only he can claim, and the rights of Caesar. And in that context, the rights of Caesar turn out to be pretty puny. They're real, but in the span of eternity, pretty minuscule. Now notice, Jesus doesn't offer a commentary about the good or, a good or evil nature of government just an acknowledgement of the reality of the state and social order. The reality is government's likely going to spend our money on things we don't approve of. I'm sure in in our own lives, in our own present day and age, we can think of any number of things that government spends money on that we as Christians don't approve of. the coin has his likeness and his inscription on it. If he cares so much about it, let him have it. Because in the grand scheme of things, he answers to God, the righteous judge. Ultimately, we owe our allegiance to God and his ministers. That doesn't mean that we rebelled. That means that we don't rebel simply because we find something unpalatable or inconvenient. We defy only when obedience to government means disobedience to God's command. And we're given that example in Acts chapter 5. When some of the apostles are called to answer before the Sanhedrin. And they make the statement that we must obey God. They're, they're told to stop spreading the message of Christ. When Christ himself said, go therefore and make disciples. And they say, we have to obey God. We must obey God rather than men. When the law of, God, when the law of man conflicts with the law of God, we obey God. That doesn't mean we won't incur punishment. The disciples certainly did. But it's credited to us as grace. True surrender and submission means that we surrender our desires to the one in authority over us God, ultimately. Now, in today's culture, that runs very counter to everything that we're told. We live in a culture of rugged individualism and I can be whatever I want, wherever I want, do whatever I want, and no one has a right to tell me what to do. But in God's economy, what rights do we really have? When the dictates of God and government collide, we render unto God the things that are God's. We are stamped with the image and likeness of God. We are ultimately God's. We ultimately belong to God. Peter writes, "Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to good to the good and gentle, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled he did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What credit is to uh, what credit is it to us if when we sin we get punished for it? That's the order of things. And what witness is it of the gospel when we do wrong and we get punished for it? Our wrongdoing brings brings reproach to the gospel and we are justly punished for it. But if we do right and are punished anyway, we endure it because of the example of Christ. So that in suffering and endurance of suffering, we imitate Christ. Sometimes obeying God means that we will suffer unjustly. Sometimes doing good will result in us receiving evil. Obey God anyway. The example of Christ Christ prayed for and blessed his persecutors. On the cross in Luke 23, Christ makes this statement, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Instead of cursing, he asked that they be forgiven. He didn't seek vengeance in the face of injustice. When he was seized in the garden and Peter rose up, Christ's response was, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? He didn't need Peter to rise up. He chose not to seek revenge. He suffered. If Christ would not seek seek vengeance in the face of injustice... if he sought to bless those who were killing him, who are we to do any different? We're called to be imitators of Christ. One commentator had this to say about rendering unto Caesar and enduring. When he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God, the things that are God's, That second part is more important than the first. The first part says, pay your taxes. The first part says, yes, the government can come and confiscate your property. It can take away your sons to war and your daughters to marriage. It can do all kinds of things because government does all kinds of things. The bigger the government, the bigger the things the government does. And it's hard to imagine any government in the first century imagination beyond that of Rome. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God's. There is that coin, and it has Caesar's image on it, but every single human being has God's image on him and on her. And thus, this makes a categorical distinction between the rule that only God can claim, the authority and sovereignty that only he can claim, the rights that only he can claim, and the rights of Caesar. And in that context, the rights of Caesar turn out to be be puny, real, but in the span of eternity, minuscule. But this is a twin command. And so you'll notice Jesus doesn't say merely render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And remember, God has some things too. He says, render unto God the things that are God's. In other words, this is everything. This is obedience to God. This is the celebration of God's rule. This is the reception of God's Son. This is the recognition of the Messiah. This is the response to the gospel in faith and repentance of sin. This is obedience to the command, and this is living as unto Christ. And of course, it does not mean bending the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. So the early Christians trying to put all this together understood that even as there is no authority except that which is instituted by God, all authority comes from God. They, following the example of Daniel and others, did not give Caesar their souls, pay him taxes, be be conscripted into his imperial army, but do not bow. Because at the end of the day, man can kill our body, but can do nothing to our soul. Our soul belongs to God. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul. We're ultimately answerable to him. Fear him alone. Rather, We should show love toward all. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We should let our light so shine before men that they see our good works. Love, humility, patience, honor, long-suffering. And they glorify God who's in heaven. Ultimately, the presence of government and structure is a testament to the existence of God because our God is a God of order and not disorder. Every time there is civil order, it's a testimony to the existence of the one true and living God. Everywhere, there is even a vestige of right order. There's a vestigial testimony to the glory of God. That's something we need to keep in mind. Every time a family is rightly ordered, even beyond the explicit knowledge of any type of special revelation, God is glorified in the right order of that family, of that community, of that village, of that school, of that company. We're to pray for our leaders. For they are burdened with a terrible burden. They're burdened with the they're burdened with the burden of God's authority and are ultimately answerable to Him for its use we should pray that they use that wisely. And we remember that the Lord is a righteous judge by whom all kings of the earth will ultimately be judged for how they've managed his authority. But it's not ours to pass judgment. Ours is to owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let us pray. Father, we we don't often like reading or hearing that We're not our own masters. It runs very counter to our nature, our nature that is sin. But we are made in your image and likeness and we answer to you. And we are able to follow your law, your commands, only because of your great grace that you have shown us. And because of that great grace, we can show that love to others. Father, I pray that you would grant us the humility to be ever mindful that we are ones under authority, we're not our own masters. That we would live in the love of Christ that we would be long-suffering in the face of trials and persecution and that ultimately we would never bring the gospel into reproach. In Jesus' name, amen.